as you may know, we started a series a couple weeks ago on Revelation chapters 2 and 3. In Revelation 2 and 3, you have seven letters to seven different churches. It just so happens that Jesus is the one addressing these churches, which, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, is a pretty fascinating concept. The idea of Jesus addressing specific churches, mentioning their weaknesses, mentioning their strengths, encouraging them, challenging them, rebuking them. It's a pretty fascinating idea. Two weeks ago, we started with the church at Ephesus, and we said that the church at Ephesus was doing some things really well. They seemed to have a great head knowledge of who Christ was, and they were willing to stand against false teaching. But if they had an issue, it's that their hearts had grown grown cold, and that their love that they first had had been since abandoned. Their love for God, their love for people had weakened, and so they had all this head knowledge, but their heart knowledge or their heart love was lacking. We said two weeks ago that that's a great challenge for us. That oftentimes it's very easy for us to have head knowledge about who God is or head knowledge about the gospel. And we can know the right things to say or do or believe, but it's another thing to love people and to love God. Last week we looked at the church at Smyrna. We said that Smyrna was undergoing great persecution. We said that in an odd way, or maybe in the end we concluded it wasn't odd at all, that despite their persecution, they seemed to be a very healthy church. In fact, I argued last week that the reason they were healthy is probably because of the persecution. They're one of two churches that received no correction. So we started with Ephesus, we went to Smyrna, and today we turn our attention to the church at Pergamum. If Ephesus was the most important city in Asia Minor, and if Smyrna was the most beautiful, Pergamum was probably the most religious. Pergamum was a very religious city. It was about 70 miles north of Smyrna, 15 miles inland. It was not on a harbor, and so it was much less of a financial center than the other two cities that we've already dealt with. That said, Pergamum had some really interesting things going for it. It had one of the largest libraries in the world. There was a library in Pergamum that had over 200,000 parchment scrolls, which was just an enormous number at the time. But more than anything, it was known for its extreme religiosity. Pergamum was a center of religion. In the city of Pergamum, you could find temples and shrines to all different sorts of gods. There was a temple to Zeus, the king of the gods. There was something for Athena, the goddess of victory. Dionysius, the patron god of the dynasty, and Asclepios, the god of healing, symbolized by a serpent. And because there was all these different temples, you can imagine all sorts of different people would flock to Pergamum for all sorts of different reasons. For example, Pergamum was known as the center of alternative healing. Because there was this temple to the god of Asclepios, the god of healing, people would often come there for miraculous healings or just for alternative medicine. But while all of those temples played a huge role in the city, undoubtedly, The religion that was over all of this was the imperial cult. By imperial cult, we mean the cult of those who worship the emperor or worship the empire. While Smyrna certainly had a long history of the imperial cult in their city, by far Pergamum seems to have been the center of the worship of the emperor, which of course meant that persecution too would have been a reality for the church at Pergamum. In those days, Christians were most often persecuted because they failed to give allegiance to Caesar. It wasn't because they weren't worshiping Zeus or Athena or any of the other gods that we mentioned. Most of the time when they were persecuted, it's because they failed to bow down and give their ultimate allegiance to the government. And so as you might expect, in a place where the center of the imperial cult was, and where Christians also existed, there is going to be some tension. And that is certainly what we see in the church at Pergamum. Look first at verse 13 here. Verse 13, Jesus says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who is killed among you where Satan dwells. 
Now, when you live in a place that's described as a place where Satan dwells and is described as Satan's throne, I think it's probably safe to assume that there's going to be some persecution. There's going to be some difficulty. There's lots of theories as to why Pergamum is labeled as the place of Satan's throne. Some are geographical arguments, but I think the most logical one is that because Pergamum was the center of the imperial cult and because that's where most of the persecution came from, it made sense that Jesus would refer to this as the center of Satan's activity or Satan's throne. Now, the fact that he refers to this as Satan's activity is something worth noting. Oftentimes, when we think of opponents of the gospel, we think of people who are opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we have to be reminded here that persecution is not just on a human level, that there is a deep spiritual war that is taking place, that Satan is actively opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our battle is not just against flesh and blood. It is against the powers and the principalities of this world. And no doubt, there was significant satanic opposition in Pergamum. There was also human opposition. In verse 13, we're given a picture of what this opposition may have looked like when we're reminded of the faithful witness Antipas who was killed because of his faith in Christ. Now, as is the case with much of Revelation 2 and 3, we're not for sure. There's a lot of details that are missing. We don't know everything about Antipas, but later church tradition would say that Antipas was actually arrested for his faith in Christ and then roasted alive until he died. But to the credit of the Pergamon church, the church of Pergamon, this did not cause them to turn away from their faith. Despite the fact that one of their own had been roasted alive, they still maintained their faith in Christ, which I think says something. If we were to leave the sanctuary today and we were to walk down the stairs, down towards the street, and on the way someone was captured, and we later found out that they were roasted alive, my guess is that our church attendance would probably be down next week. I mean, this is some serious courage here. And so as we look at the church at Pergamum, we're again reminded as we were with Ephesus, as we were with Smyrna, that there's something courageous about these early believers that we should admire and that we should strive for. But that said, there was a major problem with the church at Pergamum. Unlike Smyrna, unlike Smyrna, which there's no difficulties that are listed or no weaknesses that are listed, there's a major weakness for the church at Pergamum. Jesus talks about it in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14, But I have a few things against you, You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So the problem in the church is that there are some who are holding to or advocating the teaching of Balaam. And more than that, it seems that the church is tolerating this teaching, which leads to the obvious question, what is the teaching of Balaam? Now, you may have heard the name before. It's an Old Testament name. And my guess is, if you know anything about Balaam, it almost certainly has to do with the fact that his donkey talked to him. I mean, that's, to be honest with you, when I read this passage, that's the only thing that I could remember about Balaam, that he had a donkey that talked to him, which is obviously a pretty interesting part of Scripture. But that's not the most notable thing for this passage. If you read in Numbers, you can read a long history of what Balaam did, but essentially the basic summary of Balaam's story is this that he was a Gentile prophet, and through some cunning ways, he was able to lead the Israelites astray. And he was able to convince them that looking like the world around them was not that big a deal. And particularly, he led them astray in the areas of sexual morality and idolatry. So I think that's why Balaam is mentioned here. 
It's not that Balaam came back from the dead, but rather he's a model of what this type of teaching looks like. As scholar Robert Mount says, Balaam became a prototype of all corrupt teachers who betrayed believers into fatal compromise with the world. So Balaam is mentioned here because he's a representative. The people who are teaching in the church at Pergamum are teaching like Balaam. They're teaching that compromise with the world is acceptable. And especially they're teaching that in the areas of sexual morality and idolatry, it's okay to go along with what the culture says. Now in verse 15, Jesus mentions the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were probably teaching something very similar. From what we know of the Nicolaitans, they too were advocating for sexual morality and idolatry. And what he's saying in both of these cases is that the problem for the church is that they are allowing this teaching to happen, that they are allowing people to advocate this, and seemingly no one is standing up against it. Now, it may be easy for us to say, well, why in the world were they doing that? It's easy for us to say, why were they allowing the teaching of the Balaamites or the Nicolaitans? Why were they allowing this to happen? But if you put yourself in the shoes of the church at Pergamum, I think it's really easy to see why this would have happened. If you are already facing significant persecution, which they were, then the pressure to accommodate to the culture is going to be awfully attractive. If you're facing people who are potentially putting you to death, which obviously happened with one of their own, Antipas, if you're facing a culture that is opposed to you, then the pressure to accommodate is going to seem awfully attractive. But I think that what we need to understand today is that we, in our culture today, face the exact same temptation. We face the temptation that as the teachings of Christianity become more opposed in our culture, and as more people are opposed to what the Bible teaches, there will be a pressure on us to accommodate to the culture so that the persecution is less and so that it feels like we have more relevancy. And maybe not coincidentally, our culture will often pressure us in the same two areas, the areas of sexual morality and the areas of idolatry. And like Pergamum, much of the pressure we face will oftentimes come from within. Here's what I mean. The greatest danger for the church at Pergamum was not outside persecution. At least it doesn't seem that way. The greatest danger for the church at Pergamum was people within the church teaching cultural accommodation. And I think that we have to realize that we face that same danger. It is oftentimes people within the church or people claiming to be a part of the church that are claiming we need to accommodate the world more. Listen, the issue of sexual morality is an obvious example. There are many within the church And it doesn't take long to find this. All you have to do is go to prominent Christian blogs or go to follow Christians on Twitter and you'll quickly realize that there are many within the church who are claiming that if we do not adjust our sexual ethic, the church is going to lose its voice in the culture. And that may be true to some extent. We might lose our voice in the culture. But does it matter? What I mean is this. Is it our job to be relevant Or is it our job to be faithful to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? I would argue it's the latter. That our job is to be faithful. Now, as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should look for ways in which we can speak into people's everyday lives. And that way we should make the message relevant. We should contextualize it. But it must be under the umbrella of being faithful to Jesus Christ. The goal is faithfulness, not relevancy. So understand this, our job as a church is first and foremost to point people to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. That is first and foremost our job. 
Every week, our goal as we live is to remind people that God is holy and that he is perfect and that our sin has separated us from God. And there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. But Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins. And he's willing to make what some have called the great exchange with us. He is willing to take our sin and the punishment that we deserve and give us his righteousness, his perfection, so that we can be counted as righteous before God. This is the message that every single week we must proclaim, that Jesus Christ is a great Savior and we are great sinners. We must proclaim that message every week. And then I think we must be faithful to proclaim the whole counsel of Scripture. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We proclaim what the Word of God teaches. And then we let the results fall where they may. Now, I'll say this. I don't think that we need to be mean-spirited or unkind or cruel in our proclamation of the truth. I think, if anything, those who oppose us should find that we are the most loving people, that we're gracious and kind and humble. But we have a responsibility to stand for what this book says. And obviously, our culture does not agree with us on a lot of things. And one of them, most certainly, is in the area of sexual ethics. The most obvious example of this is homosexuality. To call homosexuality a sin is to run the risk of being labeled as ignorant at best, a bigot in some cases, or in others, just plain evil. And listen, many within the church are arguing that we must capitulate on this issue. This issue, We must accommodate the world. We must give in to the culture. But I think what we need to understand is that this is the same issue that the church at Pergamum was facing. Now, maybe not that particular uh, variation of sexual immorality, but this is the same issue the church was facing. The Balaamites and the Nicolaitans were arguing for cultural accommodation in the area of sexuality. And no doubt, many of their arguments sound just like the arguments today. They were probably saying things like, if you want to be relevant, you need to give in on this issue. Or if you don't want to be persecuted, you need to give in on this issue. It's the same thing that many are saying today. But as Jesus warns the church at Pergamum, cultural accommodation is not an option. We must be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be faithful to what God teaches in his word. And just so we understand, it's not just the issue of homosexuality. The gulf between Christians and the culture on sexual ethics is large. And it's in many areas. Just this week, the Huffington Post ran an article asking the question if it was time for us to change our views on marriage and adultery. Here's one of the last lines from the article. The author says this, Imagine how many divorces and heartbreaks we could avoid if our culture was okay with having this type of open communication. And let me pause here and just explain what the author means. When the author talks about open communication, in the context of the article, that means a conversation about having adultery within the context of marriage is a healthy thing. So again, imagine how many divorces and heartbreaks we could avoid if our culture was okay with having this type of open communication, the type of willingness to allow the marriage to evolve into something both parties can agree on, even if it's not society's customary image of marriage. Now that last line is really important. The author is arguing that we should be willing to go against what society has customarily said about marriage. But as Christians, that should make our radars perk up, right? We should understand that this idea of a monogamous marriage between one man and one woman is not just society's customary idea of marriage, although it is. But more importantly, is God's design for marriage. 
It's not just the way society has looked at it for a long time, although I think that's true. But ultimately, this is God's design for marriage. Now, to be clear, the author of this Huffington Post article is not alone. This is not the only person in our culture who's advocating for this. Earlier this month, the Washington Post ran an article in which they highlighted these, uh, these websites that are promoting adulterous relationships. And they're talking about how they are just booming economically. And so in our culture, there is a huge gap between what Christians teach on sexual ethics and what the culture looks at as sexually appropriate. But listen, there has always been a wide gulf in this area. It's not surprising to us, or it shouldn't be, that in these letters to the seven churches, this is consistently an issue that seems to to keep coming up. Because the gap between what Christians have taught on the issue of sexuality and what the culture has taught has always been large. And Jesus is warning the church here. He's saying there cannot be a cultural accommodation in this area. Now, it's not just the issue of sexual morality. He also says it's the issue of idolatry. In the case of the church at Pergamum, some were offering or eating food that was offered to idols. And again, although the pressure we face may not be the same, there may not be a temptation to eat food that is offered to idols, the pressure to be idolatrous is very real for us. And sometimes the argument is made theologically. People say things like, you're arrogant or you're closed-minded if you really claim that Jesus is the only way. Which, by the way, he is. Jesus says so himself in John 14, 6. I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But some will say that we're arrogant if we claim that Jesus is the only way. And essentially what they're arguing for is that it's okay to be idolatrous. Maybe you've heard the argument before that as long as someone sincerely believes in any type of God, surely they'll get to heaven. Really, what that is, is an argument for idolatry. But sometimes the argument isn't even theological in nature. It's just the way the culture pressures pressures us. There's a pressure to live for money. There's a pressure to live for entertainment. There's a pressure to live for material blessings. There's a pressure to live for the approval of people or anything other than God. And again, I think it's worth noting that oftentimes the voices arguing for this are coming from within the church. It's people who claim to be a part of the church who are saying, well, we shouldn't be so hard-nosed about this idea of Jesus being the only way. Or it's people within the church claiming that material blessings are something to be worshipped. This is at the heart of the prosperity gospel. Where people learn to value the things of God more than they actually value God. This is an issue that we deal with in our culture. I think it's also worth pointing this out, that for the church at Pergamum, this likely was not just a teaching issue. As if in someone was teaching that sexual morality is okay, or someone was teaching that idolatry is okay. Rather, it was also a practice issue. In other words, what I mean that this is not just a theoretical issue for the church at Pergamum. That some are theoretically okay with the idea of sexual morality or idolatry, but rather it's that some were practicing sexual morality and idolatry. This is an issue that the church of Pergamum was facing. I think it's a question that we need to ask ourselves. Are we accommodating the world in these areas? At New Hope, are we accommodating the world in the area of sexual morality? Are we accommodating the world in the area of idolatry? Listen, some of you may be wondering, is it really worth fighting over the Christian sexual ethic? And some of you have begun to wonder, Should we really be concerned? Should we really be concerned about things like adultery or homosexuality or whatever it is? And you're wondering, is it worth the fight? Maybe part of you are wondering, maybe it would just be easier to go with the crowd. 
More than that, maybe some of you are going with the crowd. Maybe some in here today, given the size of this crowd, I would, I would venture to say that it's not only likely, it's almost a certainty that there are some who are struggling with sexual morality. Whether it's sex outside of marriage, or whether it's pornography, or homosexuality, or whatever it is. And so my question is, as a, a new hope, as a church, are, is our thinking and are our practices in line with a biblical sexual ethic? How about in the area of idolatry? Are we worshiping Jesus? And by worship, I don't mean, are we just going to a worship service? I mean, are we worshiping him? At its core, worship is recognizing the supreme value of something and then orienting your life towards that thing. Are we worshiping Jesus more than anything? Is Christ really the most valuable thing in your life? Let me ask you this. Maybe just to kind of assess where your heart is. If you had the choice between losing all of your money and all of your material possessions, becoming completely broke, having nothing to your name, or losing your relationship with Christ, what would you choose? Now, I think, in theory, that's a really easy question to ask, right? And, of course, if we go to church, the answer is, well, we choose the relationship with Jesus. But my question is, would you? If you were faced with that choice, would you really choose that? How about if the choice was between losing your health? If you've, you've ever struggled with health issues, you know that losing your health is really, really hard. If the choice was between losing your health or losing your relationship with Christ, which would you choose? How about if you had to choose between your family? Losing your family or your relationship with Christ, what would you choose? Now, thankfully, these are not real-life situations, right? We're not probably going to be asked to make those types of decisions. But the question is, what would you choose? And try not to let yourself off the hook by just giving what you think should be the right answer. My question is, what would you really answer? What would you really choose? Is Jesus most valuable to you? Or is it something else? Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, brother, sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, clearly, Jesus is not arguing for an actual hatred of our family. But what he is saying is that in comparison, our love for Christ will make our love for family look like hatred. Because we recognize that he is supremely valuable. Now, here's the really dangerous thing, I think, about this conversation, is that when we ask ourselves, how are we doing in the areas of accommodating the world? I think it's really easy for us to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are actually much different than the world, when in reality, we're really pretty close. Let me give you an example, okay? Uh, I grew up in a small town in rural Iowa. And when I say a small town, I mean small, all right? 5,000 people, Sheraton, Iowa. As last I've heard, I don't know if this is still true, but... Last I heard, in Iowa, there's 99 counties. We were the only county without a stoplight. We had no stoplights in our entire town. So when I say it's a small town, I mean we were a small town. But Sheraton was my hometown. It's all I knew. And I was proud to grow up in Sheraton. I loved being a Sheraton Charger. All right? Now, I was really glad that I did not grow up in towns like Eddyville or Bloomfield, which were also in Iowa. We had to play Eddyville and Bloomfield in sports. And we always thought it was the worst to go to Eddyville or Bloomfield. Right? I mean, one, they always had terrible officials. That was one thing. But two, we always thought that they were the most backwoods, podunk towns of all time. Being from Sheraton, I was so thankful that I did not grow up in Eddyville or Bloomfield. Or there's other small towns in Iowa, too, like St. Charles or St. Mary's. There might be someone you know 
in this congregation who grew up in St. Charles, Iowa. She often sits next to me in service, just as a clue. But we are really thankful that we did not grow up in towns like that. Right, but here's what's interesting. As I got older, and as I went off to college and then eventually moved to the big city of Louisville, Kentucky, I began to realize that Sheraton, Iowa, was just like Eddyville or Bloomfield. They were almost exactly the same. I began to realize that like Eddyville and Bloomfield, Sheraton was a small, rural Iowa town without almost anything to do. Right? And here's the thing, that's okay, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, looking back, I'm thankful I grew up in that situation. But what was crazy is that in my mind, I'd started to think that Sheraton was the New York City to Bloomfield, to Albany, or whatever other, I don't know what New York City, uh, what city in New York, I should say, is a bad city. Maybe Albany, maybe that's a great town, I'm not sure. But the point is, that in my mind, I started thinking that Sheraton was the hub of all of southern Iowa. I just couldn't see it. But when I got removed from that situation, when I was able to step back and objectively evaluate, I started to realize, no, actually, they were just the same. Now, here's why I tell you that story, because I think, I think on a spiritual level, we can often do the same thing. We can assume that we are way different than the world. We kind of give ourselves a pass because we don't really evaluate. Are we actually different? But if we were to take an objective step back and look at our lives, I wonder, are we really all that different than the world around us? I think by and large as Christians, we would like to think that we are different. But are we? If you were to take an objective look at your life, or maybe if someone else were to take an objective look at your life, would they see that there is a vast difference between the way you live and the way that the world lives? When it comes to the area of sexual immorality, are you different? When it comes to the issue of idolatry, are you different? I think one of the ways we can gauge what are we actually worshiping is by looking at the way we spend our money. So if you were to go and look at your online bank account or your checking book for the last couple of weeks or couple of months, would there be a vast difference? Would people be able to tell, oh yeah, clearly this is a person who's passionate about Christ, or would your spending look remarkably similar, similar to your neighbor next door who does not know Christ at all? Listen, if we were to look objectively at our lives, would there be a difference? I think it's really easy for us to presume that we're different, much in the same way that I always presumed that Sheraton was different than Eddyville or Bloomfield. But when I was able to step back and look, I realized, no, we're actually just about the exact same town. But I wonder, is that happening for us spiritually? Are we thinking that we're much different when in reality, if anyone were to look at us objectively, they'd say, well, actually, they're living pretty much just like the world. Are we accommodating the world or are we different? Now, maybe you're saying, why does this matter? And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, this, this conversation sounds a little bit pharisaical. It sounds like we're emphasizing rules a little bit too much, and we're trying to make Christianity about doing certain things. Well, I would just say this. I understand that question, and I understand that there is that danger. And I'll talk about that danger in just a second. But I would also say this. I do think this issue matters. And let me give you one reason. All right, look at this passage. So for those who are saying, well, I, I don't know if this really matters all that much. Surely we have freedom in Christ, which is true. We have freedom in Christ. Maybe you're saying, is worldliness really that important? I, I would suggest to you, let's make sure that we read this passage, right? Revelation 2.16. This is Jesus talking. He says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. 
I think it's safe to say that when Jesus is saying that he will come and make war, that this is something he's serious about. Right? This is a serious issue. And it's not just in Revelation. There's other places too. Flip back to the book of James. James chapter 4. So just a few books back to your left. James 4 verse 4. James 4 verse 4. This is a verse you may be familiar with if you're in women's Bible study or men's Bible study. James 4 verse 4 says this. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now to clarify there, he's not saying that we go out and we antagonize people and we hate people. That's not what James is arguing for. He's just saying that if we are friends with the way the world thinks, we are in a really dangerous spot. Again, I would say this, that uh, for those who are opposed to us on these issues, I hope that they would find that we are the most gracious, kind, humble people. In fact, if you're here today and you disagree with the Christian sexual ethic or you disagree with our stance on idolatry, I just want to say I'm really glad that you're here today. But this is where we stand. This is where we stand, and we cannot make friendship with the world. Now flip ahead just a few books to 1 John. 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and then 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. So again, I'm arguing this is not just a revelation issue. This is not just a church at Pergamum issue. This is an issue for every believer. That we would not accommodate the world. 1 John 2 verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In light of those verses, I think it's safe to say that accommodating the world is not wise. Now that said, is it possible that we could make this conversation Pharisee-like? Is it possible that we could make this legalistic, right? Meaning uh, that we're making it say that you have to do these things in order to earn the approval of God. Well, of course it is. Right? And there are many people over the years who have said, well, you have to behave in certain ways so that you can earn the approval of God. You have to behave in certain ways when it comes to the issue of sexual ethics. Or you have to behave in certain ways when it comes to the issue of idolatry so you can earn the approval of God. And that is not what we are saying today. The Bible is clear. The way you have the approval of God is through Jesus Christ alone. It's because of his perfect life that you can be approved by God. So we're not saying you have to do these things in order to earn your way to heaven. What we are saying, though, is that if you are approved by God, you will have a desire to live this way. And what we are saying is that if you understand what Jesus has done, your heart will be so filled with gratitude that you will want to live in a way that pleases him. And what we are saying is that if you love Jesus, you will trust him. And you will believe that if he's saying to do these things, it's because he loves us and he knows that this is what is best. Listen, the rules he puts in place when it comes to sexual immorality or idolatry are not meant to limit our freedom, but to maximize our joy. And so let's be careful here. Yes, it's true, we can be legalistic, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about this. It was obviously an issue that mattered to Jesus, and it's an issue that matters throughout the Bible. Now that said, is it going to be easy for us to not accommodate the world? Well, absolutely not. Maybe you read the article a couple weeks ago about the CEO of Mozilla who was pressured to resign from all I can tell simply because in the past he had supported traditional marriage. And by traditional marriage, we mean biblical marriage. The marriage is between one man and one woman. There's no evidence that I know of that he ever discriminated against anyone in the workplace. The reason why he was pressured to resign 
is because he supported the idea of traditional marriage. It was viewed that in the workplace, you cannot be a person who holds the historic Christian doctrine and still be able to function as a CEO. So when you read articles like that or you hear stories like that, you begin to realize that the price of accommodating or not accommodating may be very high for us. In the future, it may be higher. And that's why Revelation 2.12 is critical to this discussion. All right, look at verse 12 here of Revelation 2. The very first thing that Jesus says I think is crucial if we're going to live this out. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, first glance, you may say, well, why is that significant? But I think understanding what Jesus is saying here, in order to understand that, we need to understand a little bit of the history of Pergamum. The sharp double-edged sword was a symbol of justice that would often be used as a reminder of the power of the Roman Empire. In fact, the Roman proconsul in charge of the entire province of Asia Minor lived in Pergamum. And that proconsul would commonly use the symbol of the double-edged sword to remind people that he had ultimate sovereignty, that he was in charge, that he was over them, and that he had the ability to execute justice. So keep that in mind as you recall here that Jesus is saying that he is the one who has the double-edged sword. This is a not-so-subtle reminder to the people of Pergamum who would know what this symbol means, that ultimately he is the one who is sovereign that ultimately he is the one that they will answer to, that ultimately he is the one that will carry out justice. That's why I don't think it's a coincidence that in verse 16, when he talks about coming and making war, what is it that he'll make war with? It's the sword, right? Because he's reminding them, I am the one who will execute justice. Listen, in a world that was completely opposed to Christians and Christian ethics, that little reminder must have made all the difference for the church at Pergamum. Because yes, they faced persecution from the state. And yes, it's true that they would likely face more if they did not accommodate in these areas. But Jesus is reminding them, I am sovereign over all things. I am the one who will execute justice ultimately. And I think we would do well to remember this as well. Listen, there may be an increasing pressure on us to abandon our relationship with Christ. There will certainly be an increase in pressure on, on us to worship other gods. There will certainly be an increasing pressure on us to accommodate the world when it comes to sexual ethics. And that pressure may come in all kinds of different forms. And it may be people saying, well, if you want to be on the right side of history, you need to do this. But let us remember who is the ultimate judge of what's right. As author Eric Metaxas recently said, God determines who is on the right side of history, not the mainstream media and certainly not the government. There will be increasing pressure on us to conform to the patterns of this world. And that pressure may come. It may come from the media. And it may come from the government. And it may come from the crowds. And I would argue that it will likely also come from the church. But let us never forget. Let us never forget who holds the double-edged sword. Let us never forget the ultimate one who is sovereign over all things. Let us never forget the one who will execute ultimate justice. Let us never forget the one that we will ultimately answer to. Let us never forget that Jesus is the one who holds the double-edged sword. And one day we will be with him. And I suppose in that way, it's not surprising at all the way this passage ends. Look at verse 17. The last thing Jesus says to the church at Pergamum. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, 
and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, this is typical revelation language, right? It's kind of cryptic and hard to figure out. What is this hidden manna? What is this white stone? But I think both are meant to point us ahead to eternity. The hidden manna, it's a little hard to figure out what this is. It's obviously a reference to the Israelites in the desert getting the manna that would come down. And I think it's a reference here to spiritual food that will never perish. There's also in Jewish tradition this idea that with the Ark of the Covenant, when it was buried or lost or whatever the case was, that there was some manna that was hidden in it. And the tradition was that when Jesus returned, that manna would then be found again. I think it's possible that Jesus may have been alluding to that, just saying in a way that they would understand, he's saying the end times. He's saying at that time, he's saying look forward to the time when I will return. The white stone seems to be the same type of thing. In this culture, when an athlete won an event, they would get a white stone with their name on it. And that stone would be their entrance into the celebratory banquet. And so I think Jesus is saying the same thing here, that you have a white stone so that you can enter into the banquet, the final banquet. Both of these are a little bit cryptic, but I think what he's trying to do here is he's trying to direct the attention of the Pergamum Christians to the idea that one day he will return. And I guess this isn't surprising because so far, in each of the three letters that we've read, each time he ends by reminding them of the reality of eternity. And when you consider the pressure and the persecution that these churches were facing, the reminders about eternity make complete sense. When life is difficult and hard here, being reminded of the reality of eternity is like hearing about a stream of water when you're walking through a dry and weary desert. There is hope on the future. There's hope in the future. And in fact, I'm going to argue that one of the ways we can test how much we've accommodated to the world is by asking how much do we long for eternity. If there is no desire in us for eternity, I wonder if perhaps that's a sign that we've grown a little too comfortable with this world. Listen, there's a reason why so far in every letter he has ended with an encouragement about eternity. Because that is where we are headed if we are in Christ. That is where we are headed. And of course, if you don't know him, it's not too late. Repent of your sins today and trust Christ. But if we do know him, that is where we are headed. And not only is that where we are headed, that is where our eyes are fixed. Because we know that there, all things will be made right. And more importantly, we will be with him forever. And in that way, I would say this, our motivation to avoid worldliness is the knowledge that we were made for another world and that there's something better to come. Why would we live for the treasures of this earth where moth and rust destroy and where the approval of people is fleeting? Instead, should we not store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust destroy, where moth and rust do not destroy? And where the approval of God in Christ is sure. Listen, the reason why we avoid worldliness is because we love Jesus more than the world. And we know that one day we will be with him forever. And we will be in a world that is far better than this world. And that is why we set aside the world. Ultimately because we're motivated by a love for Jesus Christ. Let's pray.